Welcome, and I mean a big welcome. We're starting a brand new series tonight that'll go, I think it's seven weeks, on the tabernacle. At first, that might not sound exciting. At first, that might not sound like applicable and meaningful to your life, but I promise it is. The tabernacle was God's purposeful design for how we could enter into his presence and truly experience him. Because we, we have a God who wants to be a Abba Father where you have him as your papa, you have him as your dad, and you experience him in a way that moves every bit of who you are. It moves you physically, emotionally, uh, and then it takes over, obviously, the spiritual aspect, which governs everything else. So we're going to look at how God says that's supposed to happen and how we need to follow that practice, how we need to follow God's plan. We're wired for relationships. Uh, you are actually designed by God to be in a relationship with God and with other people. Uh, by the way, the Bible teaches that. In John chapter 17, verse 3, it says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ of you, whom you have sent. The word know there is a Greek word, gnosko, and it actually means to know a person through direct personal experience. To know, to understand. In other words, you would really know the person because you've had experiences with them. And that's what Jesus said. Eternal life is not about going to heaven, even though we go to heaven for all eternity. Eternal life is about what happens right the moment you know Jesus Christ and you live in a relationship with him where you have direct experiences with Jesus and with God as your Abba Father. And God wants you to have that kind of relationship experience. God wants you to truly know him. By the way, please listen, not just know about him. He wants you to know him. Uh, I don't know if this will resonate, but get ready. Um, way, way back in the 1980s, to almost the 1990s, uh, Pam and I were doing Next Generation Ministry at a church called Not Avenue Christian Church. Two of our college-age girls, Tina and Tracy, went to the Buena Park Mall. And they're walking in the mall, and they look up, and they see John Stamos. I don't even know. Did anybody know John Stamos? Okay, you guys know. So they see John Stamos. Think back then, Nicole. He was the good-looking guy, right? Yeah, he was a good-looking guy. So they're like, oh my gosh, it's John Stamos. So they're beside themselves. So they start kind of following him without trying to be seen. And they're looking at him, and they're thinking, he's better looking in person. And they're going nuts. And, and, and so they're standing there watching. And then all of a sudden, Tina looks up, and her boyfriend David's coming. They were going to meet David there. And David comes walking up, and he goes, hey, guys. And they didn't want to tell him that they were, like, stalking John Stamos and going nuts over him. And so they're talking to David. David, and all of a sudden they hear the words David, and they turn around, and it's John Stamos. And he's going, David, dude, I haven't seen you in a while. How are you doing? And he goes over and grabs David, and they hug each other, and the girls are all freaking out because they didn't know that David and John were friends. And, and, they, and they're talking, and John Stamos goes, yeah, I started a brand new band, and hey, would you be willing to come tonight? We're playing. We're having kind of a private thing. And David's like, I'd love to. Is it okay if I bring Tina and Tracy? And they're about to faint, you know, in that moment. And he's like, oh, yeah, you guys can come, and just don't bring too many friends. And so it's kind of an exclusive thing. And John Stamos walks away and they're like, you know, John Stamos. And he's like, well, yeah, I went to school with him since elementary school. And like, they really knew each other. They were really good friends. See, the girls knew about John Stamos. David knew John Stamos. And see, that's some people know about God. Matter of fact, I'm not trying to be 
I actually just want you to, to add, think about it. Would it be more true of you, you know about God or you know God? Do you know about Jesus or do you know Jesus? See, that's a big difference. But Jesus said, I want you to know me. And if you don't know Jesus, it's not because he doesn't love you. It's not because he doesn't care about you. It's not because he doesn't want the relationship with you. Get ready. He died on the cross so he could have this relationship with you. See, I, I always think about this a lot. A lot of people, when we talk about the idea of Jesus dying for our sins, and, and that's true, he did. But did you ever ask why? And the why is big. It's so you could enter into a very real direct encounter with God as your father. See, you can't have that while you have sin. Uh, and so what happened is Jesus came to take away the barrier to bring us into a relationship with God. Now, that brings us to a series we're in right now called the Tabernacle. The Tabernacle, you're going to see in a minute, was designed by God. And God uses the Tabernacle to take us from being far from God to in a place of incredible intimacy with God. And by understanding the tabernacle, you can have a deeper understanding of God. But even more, the, the process you go to enter his presence the way he wants you to. Because there's a right way, and then there's the wrong way, which means you won't get there. And Because uh, if you go the wrong, wrong way, you won't get, get there. So anyway, uh, what I want you to know is that. But let's go back to what I was trying to say. You were designed by God to have a relationship with him that's real. And... In his design, he created you so you could have a relationship with others. Uh, there's a man named Noam Chomsky. Anybody here to Chomsky? Oh, nobody. Am I the only one? Okay, he, you do. You know Chomsky. Just because of you. Oh, because of me. Okay. <laughs> Chomsky's brilliant. He's brilliant. He teaches at MIT. He's a linguist, amongst other things. Uh, but Chomsky, who is a linguist, and his expertise is linguistics, said this, that one of the most complex, complex things known to man is grammar. Uh, you teach school. So there's a difference between English and grammar, right? Yeah, and grammar is one of the most complex things that we know of uh, in all the realm of humanity. But here's what Chomsky said. By the way, he's an agnostic, not even a Christian. Chomsky said that grammar is so complex it could not have happened by accident. It can only happen by design. Now, now, the idea uh, of not just the ability to speak a language, but to pick up the grammar of that language is something that he would even term as miraculous. And so what he said is this, since it could not happen by accident and it can only happen by design, that means that you and I are designed to have relationships with other people because we're designed to be able to communicate with them in complex ways. Chomsky's point would be this. You were made and designed to have a relationship with someone. Now, I'm telling you, God's telling you in the Bible, you were made and designed by God to have a relationship with him that is very complex, and yet you were born for that. And even more, when you become a Christian, you're born again for that. And, and here's the other thought behind it you know, don't want to let go of. And, and it's, it's a God-enabled thing. Uh, there was a study done. I get all excited about this, so... You, I don't know what you guys will think. Sarah, I want to know in a moment. Okay. Do you like babies? Yes. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I think, oh my gosh, I probably just made myself look babies. so bad. Okay. No, I'm yeah, kidding. Babies are fun. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. They did a study on babies. Newsweek Magazine reported on this study on babies, and it was called The Amazing Sense of Empathy. 
Now, this is kind of interesting. We're talking about very young babies, and they have an amazing sense of empathy at very early stages. And the research showed this. They can recognize and perceive emotional cues, which I, do you think, I think that's incredible. That is pretty crazy. Yeah, and so you've probably young. held a baby and since they had emotional cues. I have. I yeah, have, definitely. Have you noticed some guys don't pick up on emotional cues? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, so yeah. where do You're guys right. lose that? Who knows? I don't know. That's a whole different study. A whole different study. But yeah, well, yeah, actually, that's true. But anyway, um, but babies, they found in the research, could actually pick up on emotional cues. And they actually start to show empathy in early, early stage of their development. Uh, babies will cry for each other, but not necessarily cry for themselves, which I think is interesting. Uh, they did it part of the experiment is they would play a baby the sound of their own crying, and that would tend to cause a baby that was crying to stop crying. But if it was their own cry. But if they played the sound of another baby crying, the baby not only cried for the other baby, they often would mimic the cry to create empathy and attachment to the other child that was in trouble. Now, what, what does this show? It shows you that you were designed to have empathy with others. So Chomsky said, you were designed... And I would say by God, he wouldn't, I would say by God, uh, you were designed by God to have a relationship with others, to be able to communicate with others. And now what we're saying is the research shows you were designed by God to, to actually have a relationship based on feeling and empathy with others. And that would be a God-given design, which brings me to one of my favorite, favorite things I've ever read outside the Bible. The Bible would top this, but it's called The God Gene by Dean Hammer. It's an older book, but the research has been uh, proven again and again and again. And Dr. Hammer is a geneticist who actually was a part of a team that mapped the DNA molecule. And Dr. Hammer said this, he believes that you are wired to have a relationship with God and it is so much a part of who you are, it's in your DNA. He would actually got bold enough to say that if a person's healthy, then they will seek after God. If your DNA is healthy and you're healthy, then you actually are wired to seek after God. And here's what he said about that. He said when he did experiments where people were encountering God, he found that their brain switches its function so that monoamines are released and they begin to have a higher level activity. When they're in a relationship with God, the pleasure center is activated. Which, if you know the Bible, the Bible says in Psalm 16, verse 11, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. Listen to this. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Dr. Hammer said, when someone's experiencing God, the pleasure center of the brain activates, and you have a heightened awareness of pleasure. And the Bible says when you're in the presence of God, that's what's supposed to happen. And I hope that's what you're experiencing. I hope that in the midst of maybe a crazy, chaotic world, there's lots of moments, lots of times, you get in the presence of God, and you've had this sense of not only peace, but deep, deep pleasure. Uh, by the way, Dr. Hammer also found out your immune system operates better uh, when you're in the presence of God. That's why when someone on staff gets sick, I ask them, have you been doing your quiet? Time? No, not really. <laughs> That'd be a good question. <laughs> oh, well. Anyway, so now, now hang with me. I hope I haven't lost you. Hang with me. 
Dr. Hammer did extensive research and he found four results of people who consistently experience a relationship with God. And remember, the tabernacle is about how you experience this. But what are the results that ought to come when you follow what we're going to teach for the next seven weeks? Uh, number one, he, I'm going to give you his turn, but then I'm going to give you uh, the biblical view of what's supposed to happen. He would say, number one, people who have a consistent experience with God are optimistic and have a optimism in their life. They are very they're people filled with optimism. Then that's what we call faith. So the Bible says one of the outcomes of my experiencing God is I'm going to have a deeper and stronger faith. I'm going to be an optimistic person. Uh, by the way, we're having Dr. Carolyn Leaf uh, this weekend, uh, and I got to talk with her, right? Was that wild or what? Yeah, very cool. Yeah, she kind of like, well, anyway, but she talks about a healthy brain comes from an optimistic mind. And an unhealthy brain would happen when we're more negative. Uh, I thought that was interesting. So Dr. Hammer says, though, that when you are in connection with God, you're going to have optimism. You're going to have a deeper, stronger faith. The second thing you're going to have, get, he uses this term, I'll give it to you, transpersonal identification. Transpersonal identification. And, and we would call that love. Uh, it's the idea that you have a consciousness and connection with another person. And so, uh, I, by the way, I'm praying for Tracy's husband, which I promise not to say too often, and I've not said for a while. <laughs> but now I'm specifically tra- praying for someone you'll have transpersonal identification with. <laughs> Thanks, Chuck. Okay. Yeah, in England. She's going to London pretty soon. So, so, (laughs) yeah, I'm kind of glad you're going, so I don't have to pay for that. But anyway, (laughs) transpersonal identification. The idea that you have a genuine consciousness of the other person and a care for them, and so you experience love. Now, where I'm going with that is this. Dr. Hammer says the results of being in an experience with God is deeper faith and You're filled with love, love of God. The Bible says in Romans that God pours out love within your heart. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, that you and I have God taught love. And so an outcome, uh, what we call the fruit of the Spirit, is love. The third thing that happens is this. They have all of a sudden, it doesn't have to be taught according to Dr. Hammer. It doesn't have to be taught. People who have an experience with God become self-forgetful. Self-forgetful. Uh, which is a very interesting way to term it. Here's what he defined that as. That I'm willing to set aside myself for others or for a cause. Uh, The cause of Christ in in particular. So here's the thing, is when I get around God, the more I get around God, the more I forget about me and the more I care for other people. See, isn't that interesting? Now we have another term for that. We call that servanthood. That I just want to serve other people. And he said, it didn't even have to be taught. Just experiencing God, that will happen. Then number four is a good one, mysticism. That's his term. But it's the idea that things happen you cannot explain apart from God. And there's no physical explanation for most of what occurs. And so we would call that, amongst other things, answer to prayer. So here's what I don't want you to miss. Please lean in. As we study the tabernacle about being in the presence of God, And as you practice what I'm about to teach you and what God wants you to know, then you ought to have a deeper and stronger faith. You ought to be filled with love and and have that love actually now exhibited towards other people and towards God. You should find yourself wanting to serve others and put yourself second and have a self-forgetfulness. And 
you want to all of a sudden go, man, my prayers are being answered. My prayers are being answered. God is moving in a way that I can't explain. And it's incredible and amazing and awesome. And those are things that should occur for you, to you, in you, as we do this study. So is the tabernacle study powerful? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And I want you to be a part of that, and I want you to understand it. See, you were made to live in connection with God and connection with others. And when you are in that deep connection with God, what happens is you have better connections with other people. And so you begin to live life the way God's designed you to. And we learn how to do that from God's design of the tabernacle. So let's talk about the importance of the tabernacle. Number one, uh, why is the tabernacle important? Well, let me tell you what the word tabernacle means. It means a tent. And and it was called the tent of the testimony or the tent of the meeting. Uh, When it's called the tent of the testimony, it testifies to you about how to have a relationship with God. When it's called the tent of the meeting, it has the idea of you meeting with God, which we're going to really dig into more tonight. But every aspect of the tabernacle is how to go from far from God to very close to God, experiencing the power, promises, and presence of God in your life and the pleasure of God in your life. And so that's what I want you to know. Now, God is the one who designed the tabernacle. And when did he do it? Moses led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt and into freedom. They were journeying towards the promised land. And then God had them stop while Moses went on a mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. While he was up there, I think many of you know, he got the Ten Commandments. What most people don't know is the majority of the time he was up there, he was shown the tabernacle and he was taught by God its design. Very intricate parts of the design. So he got the Ten Commandments. God wrote them on a stone, gave them to him. But God spent the majority of time on the tabernacle, which is interesting because I think most of us don't even think about the tabernacle. And if we got really honest, when you read, uh, when you read Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and we get to the sections on the tabernacle, most of you skip. You just go right through. But it is the word of God and you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, you shouldn't be doing it, right? Yeah. So it appears that God spent way more time on the tabernacle than the Ten Commandments. And then when Moses came down the mountain, he showed the people the Ten Commandments. It's a longer story than that, but eventually he showed it to them. But, but then he began to teach them the design of the tabernacle. Listen to what it says in Exodus 25, verse 40. God says this, See that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. Now, what he's talking about is every piece of the tabernacle. See that you make them, all of the tabernacle, after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. Now, by the way, that's not the only place that's written. It's repeated three times in, in, the, in the book of Exodus. And when God repeats anything more than ever, it takes on more importance. So to God, God, he wants you to know it's a big deal. You do things his way. You do things according to his design so you can get the outcome God wants you to get. Later on in the New Testament, in Acts 7.44, it says this. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony. Now, when Stephen says that, he says, do you understand what happened? We had it. We had the tabernacle of testimony, the tabernacle God designed in the wilderness. Just as he spoke to Moses, uh, directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And, and so Stephen says, do you understand how big a deal that is? 
And I think even now you may not, but as we do this study, you will. Then in Hebrews 8 verse 5, it says this. It says, who serve a copy and a shadow of a heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God. Notice this. The writer of Hebrews says, Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for, and he said, God said, see that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. See that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Now, right now, you might be still sitting there going, okay, but I'm not sure what you're talking about. Well, it's going to get way more understandable. We want to show you a 3D model of the tabernacle. Now, obviously, the real thing would have been way more incredible, uh, and and yet... It is smaller than most people think. Uh, It definitely is more colorful than most people thought. And you're going to get a taste of that. And this is uh, from something called the 3D Tabernacle of Moses. And the people who made this gave us permission to show it to you. And we really are appreciative of that. And so what I want you to do right now, right now, is I want you to watch, and I'll give a little bit of description, that over the coming weeks, you'll understand this in a greater detail and how it applies to your life. So look at the tabernacle. So we're starting from outside overview, looking in. You can see there's a tent structure all around it. Now, this is where someone would have lived, and they were invited to go to the tabernacle, where they would go, and they would enter into what's called the outer court. And the first thing they would see was the brazen altar. That's the brazen altar you see where sacrifice was made. And we'll understand, you only enter into the presence of the Lord based on sacrifice. So that starts with sacrifice. Then you go to the laver. The laver was a place of washing and cleansing. So the next step after sacrifice is sanctification. Then you stand in front of the holy tent, which had the holy place and the holy of holies. And the idea right now, watching it be covered because God had a design so it could withstand all the weather conditions that would happen. But the goal is to be able to enter in now to what's called the holy place. And in the holy place, there's different pieces of furniture. One was the lampstand, which symbolized the light of God shining your life. The other was the table of showbread, which uh, uh, symbolized God's provision in your life. And now we come to the altar of incense, where the whole idea that your prayers ascend up to going into the very presence of God. And the altar of incense would have been right in front of a veil where you could go in to see the Ark of the Covenant and you would actually see the two cherubim on the Ark and inside the Ark were the Ten Commandments uh, and also the Rod of Aaron, which symbolized God's plan, purpose, and power for us to understand. So what we need to understand is as we begin to journey into the tabernacle from going from outside the presence of God inside the presence of God. This was a God-designed thing. So God designed it, and he has a purpose for each part of the design. And God wanted each part of the design followed. By the way, not just in the Old Testament, but we understand this in the New Testament even better. We understand it in the spiritual even more. So you and I need to learn what was written in the Old Testament so we can live with God in this time of new covenant. Now, the other thing I want you to know, not only did God design the tabernacle, he designed it to be incredible. So the cost of the tabernacle would be great. Now, I don't want you to miss that. The tabernacle was one of the most costly things ever made. The temple, which would be modeled after the tabernacle, would maybe be the most costly building ever made, definitely in the ancient world, but it would rival any today. 
So in Exodus 25, verse 1, it says this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him, and you shall raise my contribution. So he said, I want you to ask everybody to to give, to give to the building of the tabernacle. And then he said, everybody whose heart moves them will give to this. And it says, this is the contribution which you are to raise from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen and goat hair, ram skin dyed red, get ready for this, porpoise skins. And they're in the middle of the desert. Porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, setting stones for the ephod and for the breastplate. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I'm going to show you as a pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture so you shall construct it. So God said, I need everyone to give all the things, all the money, all the the materials so we can erect this incredible structure. And in Exodus 38, 21 to 31, it says the people kept giving and giving and giving and giving. Why? Because their hearts were sensitive to God. And they gave so much, they actually had to be told, stop, stop, we have more than enough. And they ended up with one ton of gold, which would be $57 million. They ended up with four tons of silver, which would be $3.5 million. Two and a half tons of bronze, which would be $12,250. In other words, to build the tabernacle would come to over $60 million for what is basically just a tent with all the material inside. By the way, that doesn't include how much the porpoise skin would cost, (laughs) which I don't know why. I still get intrigued. Porpoise skin. Okay, God, that's what you wanted. You see, it's so interesting that when it comes to the Lord, it comes to building things for God, most people act like we ought to give God the very least, that we don't give God our best. So Disney builds Star Wars land for $1 billion in each park, uh, both Disneyland, uh, uh, California, and Disney World, uh, Hollywood Studios. And they spend $2 billion building it. And you know what? We cheer because our entertainment is worth that. And we live in a world today that worships our own personal entertainment, but we're not willing to give to God. I want you to think about that because that's a part of this design. It's a part of the plan that you and I would be actively involved in God's cause. And by the way, remember what Dr. Hammer said, that just being in the very presence of God, you have a self-forgetfulness and you start throwing yourself into a cause that would be greater than yourself. And so in that moment, we see that. By the way, I do think this is worth noting. Not only was the, the tabernacle designed by God, Not only was the tabernacle uh, uh, called for for the people to join in worship from God, the Antichrist in the last days will hate the tabernacle. See, and then again, you go, well, wait a minute. I didn't even know about a tabernacle. Well, the devil knows about it and hates it, and the Antichrist will blaspheme it. Now think about that. just so intriguing to me. Uh, And in Revelation 13, verse 6, it says, He, the Antichrist, opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is those who dwell in heaven. Isn't that interesting? That this is such a God-designed, God-purposed, God-planned, and it's lived out in, in who we are. In the, in the spirit of spiritual realm and being with, filled with the Holy Spirit, 
that the Antichrist himself will hate the tabernacle and everything it means. Now, by the way, I would say this. If he hates it, then you and I ought to love it. If he's against it, we should be for it. Would you agree? And and so that's what we need to understand. And so the point is, the tabernacle is the place that God initiated a meeting with him by his purpose and his design. Then it would eventually turn into the temple. Then it would eventually turn into the church. Isn't that interesting? That the church is the ultimate design and fulfillment of the tabernacle. And as we study this, we're going to talk about how that's true. And again, you may not understand it completely, but you will. You will. So as we understand it, we understand how to connect with God better. Then uh, I do have to tell you this. There's an incredible promise in Revelation 7 verse 15, which is the last day's promise. And we live in the last days. And here's what it says. For this reason, it's talking about those who are, are faithful to God in a time of persecution which is coming, in a time of tribulation, which is going to happen. And it says, the Christians who stay faithful, what does God say to them? It says, for this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on his throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Now, again, I want to promise, I keep saying this, you'll understand that way better as we go through the study. But remember, the tabernacle is where we connect with God. The tabernacle is where we are in the presence of God. And so what that's saying is, in the midst of the greatest heartbreak, the hardest times of testing, the, uh, the, the most painful experiences, what will God do? He'll say, come near, and let me now spread the tabernacle over you. In other words, let me draw you close in my presence. Let me have our connection be deeper and more real. Let us have a love relationship that's directly experienced by you. That's what the whole tabernacle is about. So uh, I want you to grab that. I want you to hold on to that because he wants to draw you into his presence. Uh, the worship in the tabernacle was so interesting to me. And, and let me just go ahead and allude to that right now. Uh, so when I told you that, that we need to understand the tabernacle was a total sensory experience. Now this is important. When God designed worship, He wanted it to be a total sensory experience that would affect every part of your five senses and every part of who you are. This is the clear design of what God wanted on earth and what God will have us experience in heaven. So tabernacle worship was uh, incredible. There were incredible colors all over. Uh, Tabernacle worship was vibrant and alive. By the way, tabernacle worship was loud. The sounds of the singing could be heard for incredible distances and the sounds of the instruments. The tabernacle uh, uh, experience, you could smell the smell of cooking meat uh, so that it created this this idea of a hunger inside you and the smell of fresh baked bread and the smell of incense that was the idea of the, 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 the prayers going up into heaven. And then inside the tabernacle was where they would do the teaching of the word. Uh, so much so when the early church was born, they would go to the temple, which remember goes tabernacle, temple, and that's where they would be taught the word of God. And obviously uh, they would hang on every word that was being taught. The tabernacle was also a place and the temple was also a place and the church should also be a place where you meet together, get ready, to eat together. Okay, am I the only one? You meet together to eat together. They would gather together to eat the best of food. 
They would gather together to celebrate. By the way, they would even have the best of wine. And, and so the whole idea in the tabernacle is you would gather to do that with family and friends and, and, and extended re, uh, relationships from other people. And, and by the way, you always were invite the priest in. <laughs> Tim, we should be invited to everybody's. So um, in Exodus 24, 11, it says, yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles and the sons of Israel. And they saw God. And then what did they do? They ate and drank. Now, I know I read that very quickly. My point is, they saw God. And what's the next thing they do? Eat and drink. Isn't that interesting? That God just loves the whole idea of taste and touch and, and sight. And, and, and by the way, there would be incredible sights to see and, and things to experience and smoke and, and all those things that would happen. And so God loves the sights, the sounds, the smells, the eating, the drinking, and the celebrating. And God loves that. God loves that. And so we begin to understand God's presence and what God loves even better. Now, the last part of what I want to share with you is really important to understand before we dive more in depth next week. If you were watching the 3D model, I think you saw how small the tabernacle looked. This is more important than you know. The size of the tabernacle. Uh, the size of the tabernacle was not very large. And yet that's become shocking because everybody was invited to come. Moses told everybody, come meet with God in the tent of the meeting. In Exodus 33, verse 7, it says, Now Moses used to take the tent, pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of the meeting. And everyone, everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of the meeting, which was outside the camp. In Exodus 25, 22, it was a place for people to meet with God and meet with each other. And that invitation was given to around 2 million people. 2 million people. We're all invited to come. Two million people could come, get ready for this, anytime they wanted. And you might go, wait a minute, but there's no way two million people could fit there. Why? Because sadly, God knew that almost nobody would take him up on the, this incredible invitation, this wonderful offer. See, the outer court you saw, remember when we stood outside and you stepped in the outer court? The outer court was only 150 by 75 feet. It was 11,250 square feet. That means it could hold about 1,000 people. We're in the worship center tonight, which could hold over 3,000. It was smaller than the worship center. And you remember, 2 million people were invited, but God said at the most, 1,000 people will come and stand somewhat close to my presence, but not come all the way in. Because, see, the tent, you'd have to go through the sacrifice, the sanctification, then you could enter the tent. And when you opened up the tent and entered the tent, it was 45 by 15 feet, which is about the size of our stage. So the whole ta tabernacle was about the size, the tent of the meeting, the actual tent was about the size of the stage. And are you ready for this? Uh, it, could, it could hold, it was divided into two sections. One was the holy place, which was larger. It was 45 by 15 feet. And then it was the holy uh, of holies, which was 15 by 15 feet. And uh, so about 900 people could fit in the outer part of the tent. You opened the door and stepped inside and maybe, or actually, I'm sorry, not 900, 50 people could fit. So 1,000 could fit in the outer court, 50 people could fit in the outer part of the tent area. 
and be in the very presence of God, knowing the light of God, knowing the provision of God, knowing answered prayer. But out of 2 million people, only 50 would probably show. And then you go to the Holy of Holies where there's a curtain and opens and there's the Ark of the Covenant and it's 15 feet by 15 feet and maybe only 20 people could fit in there. Only 20 out of 2 million would enter into the true power and presence of God. You see, God knew. God knew no matter what he did, no matter how much he loved, no matter how much he cared, no matter what he promised, there would be the few who would say, yes, I want this. The few who would care enough to go by his design into his presence. The very, very few who would experience all he has for us, even though everybody could. Which makes you and I wonder, are you a part of the many or a part of the few? In Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14, Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus said it's like a, a huge multi-lane freeway that takes people to hell. And there's a traffic jam on that. And there's very, very people, very, very few people taking the winding road through the beauty of creation and the peace and the joy they could experience to enter into the presence of God. And it's very few, almost nobody on that road. Um, I read a, a study that, not, that isn't all that old, and it said this. 45% of people say they have had a born-again experience. So in the United States today, 45% of our country says they've had a born-again experience with God. But when asked, do you practice your faith in a meaningful way? Of the 45%, only 7% do. Man, I hope you're part of the 7%. I am. I'm not being prideful. I am a part of it. I don't have to guess. I, my faith is real. I know God. I know Jesus. I know his presence. I know just being in his presence changes me for the better. I know that I'm filled with faith and I'm more optimistic. I know I'm filled with love. And I find myself just loving people because Jesus loves them. And I know I'm loved by God and I feel his love upon me and poured out into my heart. And uh, I know there's this desire in me to serve God and serve others. And I really want to do that. My greatest joy comes when I have that opportunity. And then I see answers to prayer constantly. I mean, constantly. You might say, well, Chuck, are you bragging? And I'll tell you, no, that's just the experience of anybody who chooses to meet with God. Because it's not based on us, it's based on him. It's found when we come into relationship with him. So the question I want to ask you is this. How close do you want to be to God? Do you want to move into an outer court where you experience forgiveness of sins and to that place of sanctification where you find yourself freed from all the things that would taint you or hurt you or, or, or take away all that God has for who you really ought to be in your identity? Are you ready to enter into the Holy of Holies? Where you experience God's light, where you experience God's provision, where you experience Him answering your prayers.
And are you ready to see the veil ripped in two so you can enter into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is? And you find God's power, something beyond you. And you find that you can truly say, you know God, you know God. Because that's what he wants for you. And you know what's so interesting? You have to go by God's design and God's way. Uh, In the book of Romans, it says this, call on the name of the Lord to be saved. So where does it all start? It starts by you and I calling out and, and declaring that Jesus, you're my Lord. Jesus, you are the maximum authority in my life. Jesus, I, I want to serve you and I want to live with you and I want to know you as my Savior and my Lord. And then it goes next to where Jesus said, you've got to confess me before men. By the way, the tabernacle was a place of confessing before everybody the, the commit you are making to God. And we'll get to that in the coming weeks. Some of you right now, man, I'm praying, some of you right now, that you want to get close to God. And the only reason you're not will be because you choose not to. And the only reason you will is because he came and died on the cross for you because he loves you. But you can. You can be as close to God as you want to be. Right now, if you're ready to become closer to God, you're ready either to come to know him the first time or you're ready to recommit your life, then I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer with me. And all of you who love the Lord, I want to ask you right now to pray for people to pray this prayer. But let's pray this prayer together. Say, Lord Jesus, I know you love me. And I know you died on the cross for me. And you died for my sins. I pray you'll forgive me and cleanse me from all my sin. I pray you'll free me from hurt and pain. I pray you'll You'll call me into your presence. Draw me close. Make me yours. For this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen means the truth. And if you prayed that prayer, that's what it says in Romans you're supposed to do in Romans chapter 10. And you did it. You did it. And I'm so excited for you. If you didn't pray it, just right now go, I say yes. I say yes to God. And you know what? That, if that's all you could say, God knows you. God loves you. And God wants you. Then if you prayed that prayer, you've got to do this. The Bible says you've got to make it known. So I want you to text amen, which means the truth, to 77247, 77247. Or uh, you can go to family and click on I said yes. But we, we are so excited for all of you who said yes, whether you said it now or whether you've already been a believer. And we get to go on this great journey together of being far from God to close to God and closer to God and closer to God. God step by step will lead you and then you and I let's follow him all of our days and follow him into places of it that are amazing even into times of trial and struggle so we can find out what it means to consider it all joy and overcome and into places of great victory and into moments where we have a deep deep insight that can only come from him so may you may you this week get closer and closer to God because he loves you and he wants you right there And we'll see you later. God bless you guys. Have a great night. Thanks again for joining us. Here at Crossroads, we're all about helping people taking their next step. So what's your next step? Whether you made a decision to follow Jesus, want to get baptized, or you're interested in knowing more about God and the Bible through our Alpha class, we can help you take your next steps at crossroadschurch.family. 
We also want to invite you to gather your friends and family to join us right here online again next week. We're live on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. or Sundays at 9 a.m. So if you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button and you'll never miss out on any new messages. If you found this message encouraging, click the like button and let us know how we could pray for you this week in the comments. Finally, if your life is being impacted by Crossroads, and if you want to be a part of making an impact all over the world, you can head to crossroadschurch.family to do that now. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.